the Anesthesia Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this live broadcast. On the day that the COVID surge and global surge collaboratives published their new analysis on the effects of preoperative isolation on postoperative pulmonary complications after elective surgery. This international perspective cohort study analyzed data on over 96,000 patients from over 1,500 hospitals in over 100 countries throughout the world. They found that the overall postoperative pulmonary complication rate for all patients was 2%, which you know alone is, is quite useful to know. But the more striking finding was that following adjustment for various measured confounders, patients who isolated had a 20% increased risk of postoperative pulmonary complications. This risk climbed to 31% more in those isolating for more than eight days. And this is still shorter than current periods recommended in England for certain patient groups. The question is, can these new data be used to update guidelines and clinical practice, which may hopefully result in improved safety and outcomes and efficiency? as well as patient experience. Joining us today, we have uh, Joanna Simos, we have Elizabeth Lee, and we have Anil Bangu, who are from the authorship group, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you all with us this morning. But first, I'm gonna head over to, uh, to Jo, uh, and she's gonna give us a short presentation of the paper and its findings. So over to you, Jo, uh, and I'll invite you to share your screen. Thank you uh, very much, Mike. Um, I think I'll, I'll actually need you to enable me to do that. My name is Joanna. I'm a research fellow in the Global Surgery Unit at University of Birmingham, and I'm part of the steering committee for the COVID Surge Collaborative. And it's a pleasure to be here with you today to share the findings of this new paper uh, that, um, that assessed the effects of uh, preoperative isolation on postoperative pulmonary complications. And um, why is this question so important? We know that um, several institutions and societies in different countries have recommended preoperative isolation before elective surgery, but we don't actually have data to show that this is effective to reduce pulmonary complications after surgery and, um, and the effects of COVID for patients. We have conducted an international prospective cohort study, which was the Global Surge COVID Surge Week study. Many of you uh, hopefully have taken part uh, with us. This included patients from any hospital in the world, uh, from any surgical specialty could be included. Uh, patients undergoing only elective surgery were included in this um, analysis. And the data collection period was a week in October 2020 last year. To give you a definition of what we used as a preoperative isolation definition, we have um, defined this as a limitation of social contacts before elective surgery, and this included patients staying at home, avoiding public spaces and transport, and also not receiving visitors from outside the household. Our primary outcome was postoperative pulmonary complications, but other secondary outcomes can be found in the, few, in the full paper as well. We have conducted a subgroup analysis to understand if the if preoperative isolation um, had a different effect in different subgroups. So patients with uh, low or high ASA grade with different risks before surgery, uh, patients who uh, were um, exposed to different environments where preoperative testing was in place or was not in place, where COVID-free COVID -free surgical pathways were implemented or not, and where uh, different SARS-CoV-2 community prevalence rates were, um, uh, were um, in, in their communities. We've also uh, performed a sensitivity analysis to um, understand 
if the length of um, the isolation period had an influence on, uh, on the outcome, which was pulmonary complications. Overall, we've included around 96,000 patients from uh, over 1,600 hospitals in um, 114 countries. And um, which patients are these and which settings are we looking at? Most of patients, so 65% of the patients were in areas of um, high SARS-CoV-2 community prevalence. And also 67% of the patients were from high income countries, which obviously makes sense um, when we look at October, 2020. Um, most of the patients were operated for a benign condition and 60% um, 60, 60 of the patient were under, undergoing a major surgery. Overall, um, around 28% of the patients were isolated before elective surgery. And these were older, had more respiratory comorbidities and a higher ASA grade when compared to patients who didn't isolate. The overall pulmonary complication rate, as Mike has just said, was 2%. And of those, only 11% were related to SARS-CoV-2 infection. When we compare the pulmonary complication rates in patients who isolated and didn't isolate, they are similar. However, when we adjust the um, rates for both patient, surgical and local community factors, we find that um, isolation is actually associated with a high, higher pulmonary complication rate with an odds ratio of 1.2. This is consistent across the different subgroups that we have looked at, or which means that either isolation did not have an effect in reducing um, pulmonary complication, or actually it was associated with a higher rate of pulmonary complications. We also know that the longer the period of isolation is with our insensitivity analysis, we've found out that the longer it is, the higher the pulmonary complication rate actually is as well. So in summary, uh, we can say that preoperative isolation does not seem to bring, bring benefit to patients because it's associated with higher pulmonary complication rates and not lower, um, and that longer periods of isolation are associated with increased risk. And I will open the, the, the questions to you, Mike, and to, to my colleagues to discuss how can we implement these findings in our practice. To finish with, obviously, thanking to all our funders and supporters and our collaborators that made this um, study possible. Thank you. Yeah, fascinating, Joe. Um, really thank you for summarising what is actually quite um, a complicated paper um, uh, into five mi minutes. And hopefully we'll get through some of the uh, detail as well now uh, um, with some of the questions. If anyone uh, watching along has their own questions, please do send them to us on Twitter. Uh, and I will try my hardest to get those questions to the authors. So we'll start with um, a, a, a right at the beginning, really. Um, we all know about the previous contribution from, uh, from your group uh, about the timing of surgery. And this was obviously a planned um, uh, part of that study. Um, but how did you, can you just remind us again how you did it and how long it took to complete? Um, and, um, and what were the main sort of challenges that you had to overcome in order to collect so much meaningful and, and excellent data on so many patients from across the world. So basically this study was, as you say, delivered in October last year um, and many hospitals took part, for uh, collected data for one week, but many hospitals for more than that. So that's how you expand the number of patients that you include in the study. 
Um, the inclusion criteria is quite broad, so any patient could go in because our main uh, research question was about the timing of surgery after a SARS-CoV-2 infection. But these two um, sub-studies were actually planned from the beginning, and that's why we've collected data on isolation itself. So we have uh, established this platform as a, a merge of the COVID search and the global search uh, collaboratives. And we have uh, gathered uh, data and help from around um, 15,000 uh, surgeons from all around the world. Um, and that allowed us to answer different research questions with one study. Um, and we believe that is the way forward for this community to work and deliver research. Yeah, it's an excellent question. I don't think anyone else has really come up with um, uh, a, a method in current times to, to answer it, really. So, so for that, you must be congratulated. Um, just on a more sort of pragmatic level, surely in order to manage so many authors and so much data, um, email and Excel didn't really cut it. I mean, how, how did you manage um, to sort of manage the mechanics of the uh, data collection and analysis? So in practical terms, as you say, um, we needed a plat an online robust platform that would allow anonymized data to be um, uploaded and secure. Um, and that was the REDCap platform that we've been using. But the real effort behind it is actually a big team of people who gathered efforts to actually make REDCap work because obviously the, the platform itself is not enough to deliver the whole thing. So it, it's a big team effort and there is a lot, there are a lot of, people behind this um, uh, who helped uh, chasing data to ensure data quality, um, to make sure that the data completeness rates were quite high and, and that um, the data was robust for us to say that we've came to this conclusion and we've, we trust the data. So I'll go um, to either Elizabeth or Neil and, and really sort of get down to the, um, to the main messages of this paper. Um, what do you think are the main clinical implications uh, of the results that you've reported? And would you go so far to say that institutions should now even abandon preoperative isolation for all patients? Um, sh shall I go first, Lizzie? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, th th thanks, Mike, and, and great presentation, Lizzie. Thank you to everyone um, who took part in this study, both. Um, the healthcare professional teams who took part and also you know the, the patients although they didn't directly take part there was without our patients at the end we wouldn't have this type of study so let me answer that question directly then what will i do with this data in my in my clinical practice so i'm a consultant my day job is a, as a consultant colorectal surgeon at university hospital birmingham i will be looking to engage my colleagues and senior managers to change our guidance around preoperative isolation. I will be looking to um, reduce it and take it away as a routine measure. It's currently routine in our practice, and I will be looking to, to help that stop within our guidelines. I, I'm, being, I'm not saying we will abandon it. I haven't used that word on purpose because as with most things, I don't think it's an all or none. There are some circumstances where I think isolating patients may have benefits. So just very quickly, I'll give you two, two examples. If I was doing a right hemicolectomy in a 50-year-old bloke who's double vaccinated and has had a preoperative test, 
I, I would not be looking to isolate that patient. And, and I'd say the same if, if it was an 80-year-old patient, double vaccinated, tested, I would not be looking to isolate that patient. Why not? Because I want these people up and around before surgery. I want them exercising. I want their lungs expanding. I, I want them in a good physical and mental shape when they come for their operation. And the evidence shows that I'm not putting them at any risk. In fact, I may be bringing them benefit. There's probably a small group of patients who I might choose to isolate. So a patient with respiratory disease who has refused a vaccination, for example, I'll probably be more cautious in that patient. However, I, I, and I've started doing this already, um, I have been pushing them to prehab at home. So currently we are isolating these patients so for those three days at home, I'm telling the patients they need to be really active within their house. Every day they need to be doing something. If they've got a garden, they need to be doing laps off it. But yeah, to, to be direct, I think it's time that the world changes their guidance around preoperative isolation and, and, and moves away from it as routine. Uh, Lucy, I'll bring you, bring you in. Um, yeah, um, I completely agree. It is, um, it is very complex and multifactorial to isolate a patient. It's not simply uh, a broad brushstrokes. And um, this is what this um, study shows. So sometimes, especially as Anil has mentioned, we have already attained a lot of protection by um, testing and also vaccination. So that tiny marginal effect that we may be doing is actually detrimental because to... Um, isolate patients also exposes them to many of the factors as uh, Anil and Joanna have alluded to, which includes perhaps less mobilization and also the psychological side of uh, this as well. So it must be balanced out on probably a case-by-case -case basis. However, um, this, this study really does show that um, there does not appear to be a, an overarching um, benefit to isolating everybody. Um, for, for me, just um, from what you've said there, I mean, we need to really start to relook at, at prehab and, and everything we know about prehab. And um, like you say, prehab at home um, um, is a, a fascinating concept that perhaps will be something that we need to look to now for the future because um, prehab has been very difficult to do during the pandemic, obviously. That's fascinating. Um, Post-operative pulmonary complications uh, was your um, main outcome. Can you just remind us how you define that? And were you aware of the controversies around its definition and, and its use as a clinical outcomes in trials? And I'll, I'll offer that to anyone. Joe, do you want to take the first bit about definition and make a comment? I'll help you a bit with the sure. clinical yeah, thank trials you. part. So we've included in our outcome, it's actually a composite outcome of uh, post-operative pneumonia, ARDS and unexpected ventilation. And we know that there is controversy about what should and shouldn't be included, but we wanted to have a comprehensive outcome that would capture all the possible consequences of COVID and also how people would collect it. So hopefully that has allowed that, that allowed us to uh, not miss consequences of um, respiratory virus on patients and on uh, post-operative complications. Does that make sense? Mm, absolutely yeah and to to follow up on your on your second part what what are the controversies around this i'd separate this into into the trials and and the cohort studies so in trials we see this in wound infection trials we're running a, a global trial called penguin which is using the cdc 
definition of pneumonia as one of its outcomes. Within the trials, we're definitely better controlled in, in, in how we quality assure our, our definitions around pulmonary complications. Um, in the cohort studies, we have probably an element less of um, quality assurance, which is, which is a limitation. We get over that because it's so pragmatic. Why did we choose those three? The evolution of COVID surge, which we were talking about earlier, was that the first study included patients with SARS-CoV-2, 9,000 patients. That was the first step in COVID surge. The second one was a study on elective cancer surgery. This was a study on all patients done within a, a week. So there's sort of three pillars to COVID surge. So right at the start when we designed this, we tried to keep ourselves um, in sync with what the major randomized controlled trials were doing in terms of their definitions, which is how we ended up with those. Um, so not, not perfect. Some people wanted us to focus on one of those and, and, and only that as a primary outcome. We went for something we considered to be those three outcomes to be serious and um, important to patients and in line with, with what the trials were doing at the start. Mike, has that sort of represented your, your experience of, of pneumonias in the studies you see coming through the journal? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really um, um, important clinical outcome and I think I think the, the thing with post-operative pulmonary complications and, and we've seen uh, work come out of Manchester um, in the last few years or so about using enhanced recovery and and prehabilitation it's a really sensitive outcome for for those sorts of um, things that you're looking for in, in someone who's isolating at home and, and not very uh, possibly not very active etc so, so I think it was a really good choice to, to use that and what the particular definition that you've used is actually quite similar to what uh, John Moore and colleagues in Manchester have used in their previous work on enhanced recovery. Um, and in terms of the difference found between the two groups, so um, it, it was very similar between those who isolated and those who didn't. And that might cause people some difficulty understanding that because they may think that um, those who isolated have, or been isolated, been asked to isolate for particular reasons. If they've got risk factors, if they're older, if they're going high risk surgery, if they've got more, more comorbidities. Um, but the fact that there's a, a difference when you correct for those confounders shows that it's very different, isn't it? And I think that's a real um, subtlety to sort of get your head around about this analysis that the uncorrected difference is, is um, isn't there. But when you start looking at all these confounders um, that, that you've accounted for, that there actually is a difference. Lizzie, do you want to have a, have a go at that? And I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll sure, of course, yeah. So um, what we actually observed were there were some systematic differences in the patients who did and did not isolate. So um, the ones that did not isolate were more frequently undergoing major surgery and from lower middle income countries. So looking at this, at the unadjusted figures, it is very likely that they had individual and system factors that exposed um, that that um, uh, exposed them to post-operative pneumonia ARDS or less risk of it. So, in other words, when there are these systematic factors, it's really important to not only take the the raw figures, but to um, adjust this for these systematic factors so that we better understand um, how this multifactorial outcome really does play out at the very end. And so, and so if, if I give you a, um, a different take, so if, for, for those watching who are anaesthetists or surgeons and you're thinking, what am I going to do with this data? Uh, at one end of this data, you've got 
at, at best, you've got no difference between the arms. So 2% and 2.1% pulmonary complication rate. Um, at the sort of more worrying end, you've, you've got a relative increase once adjusted that, that, that could be as high as 20%, and that's a concern. When I've been through this paper and looked at it, and I, I do encourage everyone to read the data themselves because cohort studies have these subtleties to them, I definitely can see no benefits in this data. So, so even if you take the, the sort of the middle ground, which is no difference, I, I don't see a benefit in isolating patients. And there's some, there's some things that we, you know, our study didn't um, pick up. Patients whose surgery was delayed or canceled because they broke the isolation, those patients who claim to be isolating but, but weren't, and, 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 and elements like that. So even if you take the middle ground, I'm not sure it's a policy that needs to stay with us for the next five years. If you take the other extreme and you actually detect some concern from this data, then yeah, I agree. You know, digital at-home enabled prehab is, prehab is possibly the next step. Uh, I mean, ideally we'd be in the stage where we could be already opening a major randomized control trial over the UK, because if we put all our elective patients in it across specialties, we'd have an answer like the recovery trials in, in, in six months, less. Yeah, that'd be really, um, really important data at the moment um, with the way things are with uh, waiting lists and, and, um, and, and people waiting for surgery. That'd be fascinating data to collect. Um, and you sort of allude to there that, that there might be another story here about other things as well as isolation. So there, there are lots of other strategies that institutions and um, hospitals can use. Um, obviously, there's, there's a, um, a vaccination, um, and um, it doesn't really touch upon it in the paper, but there's probably a, a bit of a moral issue now um, offering surgery to patients who, who refuse the vaccine, for example. Um, but I guess that's quite uncommon. Um, but also there's preoperative testing. So if you've got someone that's double vaccinated uh, and who's had a negative PCR test three days before surgery, and then they've perhaps say isolated before surgery, that seems like a, a pragmatic um, way forward, surely, rather than keeping someone at home um, without access to clinic appointments, without access to prehab, without access to other things, and, and putting that burden on their, on their household and their family as well, because it's not just a patient that has to isolate, it's their household members as well for a full two weeks. Um, surely we need to look at preoperative testing and, and vaccination um, as you've got some data on that as well as, as ways forward and, and ways to stop um, reliance on uh, lengthy periods of isolation. I think, um, so about the testing, uh, we have published on that topic before. Uh, this particular analysis wasn't really Powered to answer that particular question, but we know from before that preoperative testing is definitely associated with a reduced um, pulmonary complications after surgery. And we know that the best sort of time frame to do that is in the three days before surgery. So that's the optimal timing to be testing patients um, to kind of avoid asymptomatic carriers to undergo surgery and have the consequences of COVID. Um, this study was also delivered in the pre-vaccination era, which means that now, um, with um, many of our patients being fully jabbed, we also know that the probability of them, number one, catching COVID, number two, 
having uh, bad consequences from COVID is much lower. So if, if this data from the pre-vaccination era shows that there is no benefit, I would only suspect that, that um, the effect wouldn't be different after we start vaccinating patients and actually the consequences of an infection being um, not so bad for them, if that makes sense. So we don't have individual data on vaccination and the effect of that, um, but we can sort of understand that um, our findings would be uh, favored by a, a routine vaccination um, policy um, and not kind of, um, and, and it would be in favor of these findings and not against the findings we're finding in this paper, I think. Yeah, and I guess it goes back to what Anil said as well earlier that um, what's been demonstrated also is, um, is a, a lack of benefit of, of isolation as well. Anil, you want, look like you want to come in? If, if I could quickly follow up, I, I think we, it's worth talking about um, another limitation of our paper, so everyone understands it, that you, by stopping isolation, there is a potential harm that even a double vaccinated patient who's tested the, the harm to other people around them if they introduce a SARS-CoV-2 to the, to the elective surgery bay, for example. I, I think people do need to think about that as, as they revise their guidelines. So my point there is if an asymptomatic carrier comes into the hospital, they're tested at day three negative, they go out to the supermarket the next day, um, they pick up an asymptomatic infection, they bring it into the bay. That, that actually it worries me a little bit if I'm honest with you, that, that is the downside of this. It's a balance. And when I balance that against two things, firstly, the rate of SARS-CoV-2 complication in this study is tiny and it's going down, it's diminishing. None of us are really operating on a patient who has SARS-CoV-2 anymore. And the post-operative incidence of SARS-CoV-2 pneumonia is going to become a quite a historic thing, I think, because our elective practices are going to become so good. So firstly, it's a very rare event balanced against the potential for an increase in normal viral pneumonias by isolated patients. Secondly, there is this element, I, I know that patients are feeling a lot of stress because they feel very isolated in the hospital. They obviously are, are commonly on the morning of the operation can't come in with anyone. So the elderly patients sort of left on their own because we don't want family members, again, doubling that risk. So vaccinated testing people coming into hospital, whether those be family, whether they be um, patients will probably take us to this concept of elective secure surgery. So rather than have completely COVID secure hospitals that are shut down with security guards everywhere, we might move to a slightly softer position where we consider our, our practices to be elective safe. And that's a balance of decisions. And that's where I would like to see the world go. I think it's time to make a move to elective safe, a little bit easier, a little bit less stress for patients. But we've got vaccines and testings, which, you know, 12 months ago from the first COVID study, we did not have. Absolutely. It's a, a, a landscape that's uh, constantly changing. And, um, um, and I think studies like this sort of help help that landscape to move in the right direction as well. Um, so we, we, we know a little bit more about what this sort of pragmatic way forward should be. But do you think, I mean, a lot of the comments on, on Twitter that we're receiving today is that, is that the study's great and it shows uh, associations, but it's perhaps only hypothesis generating and um, and you've been very um, keen to point out those limitations as well. And those limitations are all listed in the paper, which which is great. And um, I'd 
encourage everyone to go and read the full paper. Um, but what do, you, what do you think a more definitive study would look like? Anil, you sort of hinted about um, enrolling all elective surgical patients into a, into a sort of platform trial similar to a recovery trial. What, what do you think a, a more definitive study looking at preoperative isolation would look like and would it be possible? We sort of have, yes is the answer. We've got two levels of things we, we're capable of doing here. As I think Joanna discussed the network at the start and you commented on it, the way I describe it now is that we, we, the COVID surge global surgery network, which is comprised of doctors, medical students, nurses, surgeons, anaesthetists, everyone, um, it's not an exclusive club. It's, I like to see it as the Amazon of, of data collection around the world. If you want a study doing tomorrow that's going to deliver in a month anywhere in the world we, we can deliver that and i'm very keen to see that network stay alive i think we need to think carefully about what the next stage is going to be i don't think there's any point focusing on SARS-CoV-2 surgical patients because because there's so few of them um, i'm not sure how much surgery is being done in vaccinated and unvaccinated patients and that's maybe a place to go for data collection but but we need some feedback for, from readers from listeners and and to, to understand what that's going to look like that'll probably be an endeavor next year um however the randomized controlled trial platform is slightly different and, and that's one that produces a different type and quality of evidence and, it, and again we i don't think that's up to us to decide we need community feedback from patients and practitioners um, I, I would be very keen for us to be doing more urgent randomized control trials. Recovery brought the RCT back into fashion in, in a way that I just thought was, a, was amazing. And um, we, we don't want to slip back to surgical trials of 100 versus 100 patients. If we did a prehab trial digitally at home, it, it wouldn't be 200 versus 200 patients. I, I'd propose that it's going to be 5,000 versus 5,000 patients cutting across specialties, for example. Um, so yeah, I, I, if people can give us feedback on social media and, and, and Twitter and stuff, that and email, it'd be really important to get a pulse of the network. Yeah, it's fascinating, and it's really good to see um, people connected in, in that way as well. That um, you know, that's these sorts of questions and studies and and uh, and designs and everything can be really influenced by by anyone that wants to get involved. And um, and uh, I think that's something that comes across about the. COVID search group is like you say, it's not an exclusive club or anything, it's for everyone. Uh, and uh, I think that's a real credit to the group. Um, so I'll finish um, with a question for, for all three of you and perhaps I'll ask Joe this first. Um, what else has the group got planned? Uh, and when will the next paper be coming out? So I'll leave the next paper to Lizzie, maybe to give you a, a hint of how that's gonna look like. Um, the collaborative is definitely alive and willing to um, deliver more studies on the global surgery world, that's for sure. And also we are aiming to um, build a network to disseminate research findings uh, easily accessible to all surgeons around the world as well. And we've been developing that with our international partners to not only uh, create and deliver research, but also uh, make it reach people who can use it to actually change clinical practice in high end, low and middle income countries. So we're looking forward to do that with our partners. Off to you, Lizzie. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Yeah, and I would definitely echo what's already been said. 
working towards more of an adaptive and fluid uh, collaboration where we will be able to take on new ideas and address the the changing, ever-changing landscape um, as soon as possible so that we can get patient-level data to the clinicians and patients and interested stakeholders as soon as possible so that it can be used with as little barriers as possible. And um, our next paper to come out um, very soon will be around um, another somewhat topical issue, especially earlier on in the pandemic, which is venous thromboembolism in patients um, with SARS or having operations during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, uh, it it definitely is worth um, tuning in for. Yeah, and and, um, we're going to... have Ed Mariano chair the next live broadcast for that paper uh, later in the month. So look out for that. Well, I, it's it's been great to to go through um, all of that on the day of publication today. Um, Twitter is very much alive with comments. We've had questions from Sean Linton from the Independent, um, who we can all go and reply to now. Tim Cook's been uh, making comments as well. Uh, and various other people from all around the world uh, tweeting us all about the paper and, and giving us their take on it. Uh, and I'm sure that will continue as, as the day goes on today as well. Um, so thank you very much, everyone, for um, uh, joining us uh, this morning uh, and for giving us your time to set this paper in its context. Um, and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice thank to you. talk to you, everyone. The Anesthesia Podcast.